bringing you the stories behind the standards. This is the BSI Education Podcast with Matthew Childs and Alan Sellers. Today's episode is on the standard PAS 440, Responsible Innovation. Hello, my name is Matthew Childs and I am with Alan Sellers. Hello, Alan. How are you? I'm well, thank you. And how are you, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. Now, Alan, big question. Is the Christmas tree up yet in the Sellers household? No sign of the tree yet, but we have found the decorations. (laughs) That's a fantastic start. I'm getting seriously lobbied from Child B to get up our tree as soon as possible. We've had uh, many renditions of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, so I think I'll have to give in and do it this weekend. I think I'll follow suit, Matthew. (laughs) Now, the aim of this podcast is to bring you the stories behind the standards. This episode is another of our Standards in the Spotlight, where we dig a little deeper behind a particular standard, getting behind the document itself and exploring what it's all about. We did this back in episode three of the podcast, when we looked in more detail at ISO 45001 on occupational health and safety management. The one we're talking about today is called PAS 440, Responsible Innovation. The central idea behind PAS 440 is to provide guidance to organisations on how to structure their innovative thinking and processes responsibly, irrespective of their sector or industry. So why are we talking about this one? That is a good question. Now, BSI has been around for ages. In fact, we go all the way back to 1901. And since then, we've published over 40,000 standards. So we have a pretty extensive back catalogue. PAS 440 is a young upstart, really, one that was only launched back earlier in 2020. Now, you remember, Alan, when we spoke to Peter Swan in episode six about standards and innovation generally, he told us about how innovation has become an increasingly important issue for both economies and economists over the past 50 years, and how innovation in academic circles has become a really diversified subject area, which now includes the study of responsible innovation. Now, most organisations want to do the right thing, but what is that? Usually most of the benefits of a new technology or an approach are clear, but how do you go about identifying and mitigating potential harms or unintended consequences or misuse and so on? There was no overarching framework or guidance for organisations until now, so that's why we thought PAS 440 was worthy of a bit more attention. Now, to help us tell the story behind this particular standard, We spoke to colleagues inside and outside of BSI about how PAS 440 was developed, why it matters, and how it's being used out there in that there real world. This is me interrupting myself to remind you that for more information on BSI education, go to bsigroup.com forward slash education. This link and others on the themes raised in this episode can be found in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any comments or questions about this episode or ideas for future episodes, then do please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. Just thinking, Alan, as an engineer... What does it mean to you to innovate responsibly? Well, I think as an engineer, we tend to think that the things we do will have a positive impact. 
So I guess it's not something I've particularly thought much about. But then the unintended consequences of innovation are quite real. I suppose before we go any further, we should clear up this uh, the first issue. What exactly is a PAS? A publicly available specification, or PAS, is a fast-track standardization document. Published within 9 to 12 months, it defines good practices for a product, service, or process. A PAS can be sponsored by private organizations, government departments, trade associations, or professional bodies. But it is developed independently by a group of stakeholders selected from relevant fields and led by BSI. Around 30% of standards developed in this way have gone on to form the basis of international standards. So that's the straight definition of a PAS, a fast-track standardization document developed using the same consensus stakeholder-based model BSI uses to develop all of its standards, bringing experts from a wide range of fields to agree what good looks like. But I suppose the key difference here is the issue of sponsorship, whether that be from government or trade associations or the private sector. Now, to find out more about why this particular route will be chosen to develop a standard, I spoke to Elaine Shine. Elaine is a past business development manager here at BSI, working with organisations to develop a range of different standards. I started by asking Elaine, is a PAS different to a British standard? Uh, yes, uh, they are different different types of documents, although the, the processes uh, have the same basic purpose of setting out an agreed way, way of doing something so that the end user of the standard can make a reliable assumption about a particular product or service or practice, whatever the standard is about. Um, and they're both based on full consensus and public consultation. Um, the differences arise, I think, in two key areas when you look at time and control. So for the time, a PAS is a mechanism that was developed to be a fast-track standardization process. So it takes about nine to 12 months to develop. Um, and this is done by engaging with an external sponsor to commission the PAS development um, and these sponsors come from private industry, trade associations and, and government departments and this funding is used to assign a BSI project manager and to convene a dedicated steering group of experts to agree the contents of the PAS so it can be done in, in a speedier timeline than, than a British standard which typically takes between two to, to five years although I do know of British standards that have been developed in, in a quicker timeline than, than that. Um, the other key difference is, is around control, as I said, um, and that is really around the scope of the PAS. So if you have an idea of, of, of what you want for a PAS and you have a scope in mind um, and we have um, confirmed that that scope is truly unique and doesn't overlap or contradict with any formal standards, be they British, European or international standards, um, then you can have full control over what exactly is in that scope and out of scope, which is, can be just as important for PAS development. Um, and then once the scope is agreed and approved um, by BSI, it goes through a full consensus and public consultation process. So the content could change slightly, but as a sponsor, um, and as a, an early key stakeholder, you have uh, a, a huge amount of control over, over the scope of the standards. So I think they're the, the, the two key differences. 
And in terms of um, PaaS going on to become an international standard, is, is there a route, a direct route for that in the way there would be for, for a British standard? Um, so PASAs can be used as base documents for ISO standards. Uh, about 30% of our PASAs go on to become ISO standards. And of course, not all PASAs are intended to become ISOs, uh, but we can position them in, in, a, in a good place to, to go on and become an ISO standard. We can't guarantee that a PAS will automatically be taken up by mm. ISO, but we can get it well placed to, to be taken up. Most of our, the majority of our PAZs would be internationally applicable and we would ensure that's the case for a PAZ that's intended to go on to become an ISO standard. Uh, when convening that dedicated steering group for the development of the PAZ, we would look to including uh, BSI technical committees and mirror committees on the, the steering group to ensure that, you know, People involved in ISO standards development are aware of the standard and know that it's coming um, and we would help the, the sponsor and the project manager build a business case for putting that path forward for, for ISO standardisation. Now we're we're talking today on today's episode about PAS 440. Mm-hmm. Um, for this particular PAS, who were the key players involved? So for for this one in particular, so for all our PaaS development projects, our BSI project manager uh, at the beginning of the process does a, a, a huge level of in-depth research into key stakeholders in the particular for the particular sector that the PaaS should cover. Uh, so so for this one, we were looking that we had a pre-standardisation uh, body of work that was carried out before the standard kicked off. So we had a good idea of who the stakeholders could be. And there was a huge amount of interest as well for this particular PaaS. Uh, but in the end, our steering group was made up of representatives across uh, several sectors. So covering AI, robotics, novel materials, life sciences. So we had representatives from Arizona State University, Cognizant Technology Solutions, um, I2 Media, Goldsmith University, uh, the Institute of Engineering Designers at 3M, uh, Knight Design Innovation Limited, uh, the University of Manchester, OECD, Sainsbury's um, and Syngenta and the University of Cardiff. Uh, And we were on all our passes, we have to have a fair and transparent uh, representation of industry. And we try to cover off as many uh, factions of industry and, and sectors as possible. And I think it was a really good, it was a really good cross section of, of organisations that were involved in the development of PAS 440. So you mentioned there are a fantastic range of stakeholders uh, involved in the development. And obviously, passes are sponsored by uh, industry or organisations. And Innovate UK was a sponsor for this particular standard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Innovate UK. Uh, so Paul Mason at Innovate UK um, came to us in uh, late 2018 with an idea of a scope for a standard. Uh, and we worked very closely with him to identify the key stakeholders that should be involved and indeed the, the market need for such a, a standard um, so they would sit on the steering group as well as the technical author so the technical author for this project was uh, Joyce Tate um, so they both sit on, on on the steering group. And your particular role Elaine you've mentioned there about the project managers what, what was your role in developing PASS 440? So as I said as I said I started speaking to Paul Mason late in 2018 he'd been working on an idea around 
responsible research and innovation. I felt that responsible research had been covered by university ethics committees and came to us, came to BSI to say, you know, we want to create something that we can use with the SMEs that we fund, uh, looking specifically at responsible innovation. So my role in, in, in that early conversation was to work through what, what could be a workable scope for a PAS with him. So look blazing with internal teams in BSI or content development teams to make sure that we were developing a scope that was suitable for a, a PAS document. Um, and then one of one of Paul's specific requirements was to reach out to industry to make sure that this indeed was something that was needed by industry and that there was an appetite to develop a standard or a framework for responsible innovation. So before we kicked off the, the PAS development project, we designed a pre-standardization piece of work that looked at carrying out 50, around 50 in-depth interviews with key stakeholders across several different sectors to ask was there a need for the standard? What should be in scope with the standard? What should be out of scope? Um, and also identify stakeholders that should be involved in the development of the process. So I was involved in in, in putting that, that pre-standardization work in motion and making sure that we had the internal resources uh, assigned to, to carry out that work. Uh, once we finished that. We had an overwhelmingly positive response to the market need uh, and that confirmed that the work should go forward. So that was about March 2019. I then worked internally with BSI teams to get approval for the standard. All our, our PAS projects have to go through an internal approval process to make sure that they're unique, that they don't contradict with formal standards and that our BSI technical committees are aware of the work that's going on so that they can get involved should they wish to to do so uh, and also identify work that's happening in the formal standard side of the business um, that might might be of relevance to the project. So I have an overarching kind of overview of, of all of that work that's happening and make sure make sure that all the parties internally know about the paths that's coming down the line and, and get approval. Once that approval is sought, uh, worked with Innovate UK to agree um on the on the process and put all the contracts in place and then confirm the project uh once all that was done i hand over then to a bsi project manager and in this case it was Pavisha berry in our content development team who takes over the the day-to-day -day running of the project uh, and make sure it runs to schedule make sure all the domain research is done that we know of all of the standards that are relevant to the topic area that we reach out to all the relevant stakeholders and get them involved and, and carry out the process. Now we ask all our guests uh, Elaine a personal question about their standards journey so I'm intrigued to know what was your what's your particular standards journey how did you get to this point? It's nicely rounded so for my for my degree and my master's uh, two separate thesis documents that uh, focused around standards, different topic areas covering uh, sustainable design and, and flood risk management, but focusing on the standards as they sat with the sustainability slant and whether they were still fit for purpose. Um, and then moved into a, a career uh, working with trade development organisations, helping companies come into the UK and set up their businesses and trade with, with organisations in the UK. And more recently had 
works with organisations in the medical device arena. So standards were hugely important and it was my role to always advise on standards and what standards they needed to uh, follow in order to sell into Europe and the UK. So it, kind of, it seemed like a natural progression to stop talking around standards and actually get involved in the in the development of standards. Now, Elaine there mentioned one of the key features of the PAS being that the development of the document has a sponsor. In the case of PAS 440, this being Paul Mason and Innovate UK. Paul is Director of Innovation Policy at Innovate UK, which is part of UK Research and Innovation, a non-departmental public body funded by a grant in aid from the UK government. The idea behind Innovate UK is that it invests in ideas and technologies to drive productivity and economic growth. Since 2007, it has invested nearly £3 billion in over 11,000 projects. Elaine also mentioned the key role played by Joyce Tate as the standards technical author. Joyce is co-director of the Innogen Institute, a collaboration between the University of Edinburgh and the Open University. The aim of the Institute is to produce high-quality research and support the delivery of innovation that is profitable, safe and societally useful. We spoke to Paul and Joyce about their roles in the development of PAS 440. We wanted to know why was PAS 440 developed and what was the problem it was setting out to solve? We did indeed, but we started by asking them, as we do with all of our guests, what were their standards journeys? We love a journey, don't we, Matthew? (laughs) We do indeed. I spent the first 25 years of my career in the chemical industry and uh, the businesses I was working in um, used standards very widely. Uh, and I guess the overarching one was, uh, well, when I first came across it, was called BS5750, which, of course, became ISO 9000 and then ISO 9001. And so everything we did had to be accreditable and to sit within our management control systems. Um, and um, I became an ISO auditor and got trained up to do that. And then I was a change manager for a while. So working on how you use standards to solidify what you do, but then also use them to help improve what you do without kind of creating uh, difficulties because you're breaching your written down procedures. So how do you, you know, creating that wiggle room that you need to, 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 to drive a continuous improvement culture. Um, and then more recently, of course, I got very interested in responsible innovation and how you approach that, which is the, the, the topic of, of, of today's discussion. So, yeah, I've been in the field for, I suppose, you know, <laughs> 20 or 30 years I've been aware of standards and their importance. And Joyce, I suppose from a, uh, Paul's talked there about uh, from a practitioner's perspective and as a change management, as an academic, I, I, I assume your, your journey has been slightly different? Yes, it's slightly. Um, I, I do, I, I, I'm kind of a social scientist now, but I describe myself as the engineering wing of the social sciences because I really like to make things happen as a result of the research I do. And I've, I've always worked like Paul. I started off in chemicals, uh, pesticide industry, looking at how it was regulated and uh, how the technology was developed given the context of the regulatory systems. So, so I was always looking at regulation, innovation, interactions, and followed the agrochemical industry into GM crops when it moved in that direction, and then moved from agriculture into health-related applications of biotechnologies. And every time I noticed that the regulatory systems that we're using for these technologies were not really fit for purpose because they were based on the chemical system, 
which was started in the 1950s, 1960s. So they weren't applicable to biology and, and they were causing problems with innovation. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, standards might have an answer to this. So that's when I began to interact with Paul, when I was thinking about regulation innovation interactions and the role of standards. And uh, then became involved with the BSI on a project to look at how standards could be used to make regulatory systems more adaptive. And, and that project really grew legs and, and became quite important and is now part of the UK's approach to adapting its current regulatory systems to make them more uh, meaningful for, for these bio-innovation technologies. Um, and it's, it's very relevant to the current uh, um, vaccine development where we're hearing about regulatory adaptation uh, to, to uh, enable us to get these vaccines out faster. And, and that's very relevant to this whole agenda. So part of that agenda was um, responsible innovation, because if you're going to ask companies, or sorry, if you're going to ask regulators to make the regulatory system more amenable for for companies to develop new technologies, then the companies, you're going to have to be sure these companies are going to operate in a responsible way. And the need for responsible innovation, therefore, arises partly from that agenda. And, and uh, that's why, how PAS came to be uh, in my interactions and Paul's with, with that agenda on um, regulatory adaptation as much as anything else. Now, in the, earlier in the podcast, we explored uh, the definition of a PAS, what a, what a PAS actually means. But I suppose a question for you, Paul, um, in a nutshell, I suppose, what is PAS 440? Yeah, so PAS 440 is best seen as a guidance standard for responsible innovation. So responsible innovation is as you develop new products or services or processes, can you think as broadly as possible about the wider implications of what you're doing? Um, and all the best technologies are massively impactful and they have tremendous potency, um, which, of course, means they can be a force for good. Uh, but everything that can be a strong force for good could be a strong force for bad if it's misused. So I would not, for example, want to uh, live in a home with no electricity, but I don't want an electric shock every time I try and turn a light on. And I uh, don't want to cook in the kitchen with blunt knives, uh, but you know I don't want to get stabbed by one. So, so the question about technology is not that it's inherently good or bad, but that it is how it is deployed that determines the extent to which it's useful to society or detrimental to society. And to back to go back to the, the perspective of, of companies, companies are trying to make and sell something and they want to do it in a responsible way. But until now, there was no framework that would help them think through, well, how would I know I'm doing it in a responsible way? How do I know I've thought of everything? How should I approach this problem? Can I demonstrate that I'm trying to do the right thing? And can I engage with people around that? And so that's why a guidance standard is useful, because it doesn't tell people what the answer is, but it guides them through the thinking process about the, about the problem so that they can structure their activities to get the benefit from the innovation. So growing the company, employing more people, paying more taxes, um, but avoid any un unintended downsides or misuse 
uh, through planning better mitigation activities. Um, so yeah, that's that. I think is. I'm not sure that was a nutshell, but that's kind of the spirit. Maybe a large nutshell. Largely, yeah. We'll call that a Brazil nut, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's a Brazil nut or coconut, probably. <laughs> I, I suppose yes, a coconut-sized uh, <laughs> coconut-sized uh, nutshell. Yeah. I suppose it, I suppose, leaving on from that, then in in a sense. What problem was it trying to solve? I mean, what was the, what was the situation that predated it? What what were you trying to address by developing this particular standard? Yeah, I mean, so if you think about, I mean, this is a gross simplification, but a lot of really cutting edge technologies come out of the universities and the research base. And if you want to do research that has societal implications uh, or ethical implications, uh, the leading research universities, uh, all of them, have ethics committees and so if you want to do something that 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 cuts into that space you need to get permission from the university's ethics committee before you can do it and there's some guidance and they tell you what to do and other people will look at your suggestions and they'll give you a green light or they might give you an amber light say come back redesign your experiment and come back or something Uh, or they might say no you can't do this we don't consider it to be acceptable so if you're an academic you've got a really clear guidance structure on how it is that you can do the right thing and know that you're doing the right thing because you've had somebody else think about it if you're a company none of that exists um and so you're kind of really on your own so you've got a series there are 1.28 million companies in the uk that have employees um so you've got 1.28 different ways of tackling the problem, uh, 1.28 million different ways of tackling the problem. And that can't be efficient for any economy. And it also means that while some of those companies will do it brilliantly, others may do it less well. And where technologies or industries do things less well, um, that might, if you like, start to get pushback from, from wider society, then that inhibits the growth of those industries and i mean a great example of that is um gm in europe i mean there is no gm in europe um and that's because society didn't like it and so it got stopped and uh there's nowhere else on the planet where that uh restriction exists that i'm aware of um is that gm being genetically modified oh yes indeed so yes so so particularly meaning genetically modified crops um so society decided didn't like that technology, and yet in other parts of the world, the benefits of that technology are are accrued. Um, now, I don't want to get into a debate about whether GM is a good or a bad thing, but the point is that if society decides it doesn't want a particular technology or doesn't like a particular company, it's really hard for that company to exist. Cambridge Analytica is another example of a company that you know was basically did something which was not deemed acceptable <laughs> and now no longer no longer is there so what we wanted to do is to create a standardized approach to help companies do the right thing and, and to do it efficiently so not to take up like masses of time on it not to have to put enormous amounts of your resource into it but to be able to put a balanced amount of resource into it so that you could have some confidence as a business person trying to do the right thing, trying to take broader society and your stakeholders into account um, as you move forward. And for me, effectively, a management system is quite an abstract thought. How do you, you know, what is your management system? How do you run this organization? And ISO 9000 provides that framework. It doesn't matter if you're running a hairdresser or an oil refinery, 
you you know ISO nine thousand can be used, mm. and so the point of PAS four forty is that it doesn't matter whether you're developing AI or machine learning algorithms or genetically modified crops or novel materials. The principles of how you think about your place in society and making sure that you you know you act in a way that would be deemed acceptable um, still apply, and it's particularly early. Um, for it's particularly relevant for early stage technologies. I'm picking up on Joyce's earlier point because with really early stage technologies, innovators are still trying to work out what you can do with them, and often there is no regulatory framework. I mean, society hasn't decided yet through the law, through your elected parliamentarians who pass the law, what it is considered okay to do. So you do have to make it up as you're going along because you're pioneering. Nobody's been there before, and Having some guidance for what is a good way to be a pioneer is quite useful uh, for those companies. And also it means that, that, that those industries can grow and flourish rather than, um, than being sort of held back because they, you know, they, they, they did some damage in the early days and they've never had the chance to recover. Um, yeah. I suppose well, you, paint, you painted a picture there, Paul, quite um, nicely about those you know, 1.28 million different ways of, of doing things. And I just wonder, um, why now? Why, what, at what point, what, you know, what was the process for decided to do this? What seems like a very sensible approach, a very sensible idea. What were the drivers for doing it right now? So, yeah, I mean, right now is a journey for us because we started, first of all, thinking about this in 2010, 2011. And uh, I was running the Emerging Technologies Programme in Innovate UK then, what was then called Technology Strategy Board. And we wanted to invest in synthetic biology because of its power to do good. And there are lots of examples of how it has done good and continues to do good. So that's a useful technology. Um, But obviously, something like synthetic biology raises questions of a sort of ethical nature. Is it right to have this technology? Is it is it is it right to deploy it? Um, If you want, you know, how do you how how do you deploy it responsibly? And we were going to fund companies in this space. And we wanted the companies that we were funding to to do the right thing. And yet we knew that they had no framework to think about that problem. How would they know that they were doing the right thing? And how could they demonstrate that they were doing the right thing? Whereas the academics working in that space had their university ethics committees to, to, to turn to for advice. And... So we created a responsible innovation framework. Um, I, I remember sitting down in Swindon and writing the first draft. Um, and that was been in about 2011, 2012. And, um, and I consulted very widely because I thought, you know, I'm, I'm a you know, business guy and a chemist. I don't know much about ethics. Um, and so I sought the advice of experts to try and guide that. Joyce was one of the experts that, I've, that, um, that stepped up to help and was brilliantly useful on that, not only in the drafting of the original document, but also in the, the way we used it in the following several years. I'm sure she can say more about that in a moment. Um, so, so for a while, this thing about responsible innovation existed within Innovate UK to guide its investments, not only in, uh, in synthetic biology, but in principle in anything. Um, and then we began to feel that actually this was a more important subject than just Innovate UK. You know, I mean, we are 
we're I think we're an important part of the UK landscape, but you know we're not everything in the UK landscape, and you know we're certainly not everything in the world. So, so how do you go from and a process for trying to help people do the right thing, only being in your own organisation, uh, to it becoming part of the national process, you know, part of the national psyche. How people, this is how we do things around here, um, and potentially internationally, how do, you know, how does the world decide it? You know, thinking about these things, and you know, BSI is the predominant body, you know, preeminent body for for that whole journey. You know, taking something. And turning it into a national standard with broad consensus across the key stakeholders, you know, people and public consultation around that, and then taking the voice to the um, international standards organisation to say, well, you know, here's a perspective from the UK. Um, you know, what do you think, folks? Um, and so, so the journey has been over that period of time, and and I think probably recent events in digital. Um, with things like I don't know cyberbullying or you know Cambridge Analytica and examples of misuse of personal data and things like that, that's brought it more to the public consciousness in the first two years that in the last two years. Um, but it's been a journey for us for a decade. Um, you know, is it the right thing? How does it land? Does it help companies or hinder them? Um, and I think we've reached the stage now, you know, where we're very definitely of the view that it that it that it helps companies a lot, and we need to get on with it. So, Joyce, I asked Paul there about um, whether, you know, why now? And it, it sounds like uh, my question to you is, it's about time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. I mean, there's been there's been an enormous amount of research, particularly funded by the European Union, on what they call RRI, Responsible Research and Innovation. And actually, most of that's been about responsible research. And it's not been that applicable to companies who, as, as Paul says, you know, They've got other things on their plate as well. They can't afford to take six months off while they work out how to behave responsibly or what their potential customers in the future might think of the products they're developing and so on. They really don't have the time to undertake that kind of initiative in great depth. So we had to develop something that was industry-friendly in the sense of understanding the, the other challenges that companies are facing but not so industry friendly that it was allowing companies to get away with questionable practices. And, and one of the, the key points that we wanted to build in was also enabling companies to demonstrate very clearly, if challenged, that they had been behaving responsibly and to give chapter and verse as to how they had done that, on which date, who they had spoken to, what decisions they had taken, what factors had influenced those decisions and so on, so that it became kind of embedded within the company's uh, regular management procedures. It became like how they dealt with their risk register. You know, there's the responsible innovation register. You have something that you can just pull off the shelf and will deliver that accountability to other people, uh, particularly members of the public who might be interested. So that was a really important factor in, in the, the, the motivation to do this because, you know, we were aware of companies who had been behaving very responsibly who had then had a challenge that was completely unexpected from an NGO and, and who just hadn't documented it. So they were left looking as if they hadn't done anything. And and they were left they were caught they were caught off guard and it made them look as if they were making it up as they were going along, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we wanted companies to be able to avoid that kind of thing in future. 
I want us to move us on in, in a second to talk about um, who is involved and uh, your roles in particular in developing the standard. But before we do that, I've got to ask you, Paul, why why 440? Oh, yes. Um, it's a music thing. So um, it, when if you go to a concert, you hear the orchestra tuning up before it starts to play. And they tune to the oboe and the oboe plays a, an A um, above middle C. And that, the frequency of that note is 440 hertz, so 440 uh, beats uh, per second. And um, if that didn't happen, then all of the instruments in the whole orchestra, and typically maybe 100 people playing in a big modern orchestra, would all be playing in different, you know, they wouldn't be playing in tune. And it would just sound cacophonous. It would sound truly horrible. So just as in the way that an orchestra sounds better, when the different sections and the different instruments tuned to an agreed note um so too does a supply chain work better when the component parts of that supply chain have agreed processes for how they conduct themselves and and how how things should be done Uh, and that's that's the reason for the name 440 and if you go back in history i mean it was a nature paper from 1880 that describes more than 30 different pitching systems around europe in the 18th and 19th centuries so you know that you know it would it might not have been possible to kind of move from um one organ um to you couldn't put an organ next to another organ from a different church in germany and they couldn't play together because they're tuned completely differently um but that's the origin of the note it's all about harmony so i'm just wondering alan whether um 440 hertz is the is the frequency of consensus maybe well, it's it's a great question to pose. I think I'm. It's the first time I've ever heard somebody explain why a standard has a particular number. So that's that's fantastic. <laughs> that, that really is a good story behind the standard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Paul, if nothing else, if nothing else, you've you've named a, you've named a standard. <laughs> so in terms of in terms of involvement, then I'm. We explained, as I said, we explained earlier on about the. The process behind a past development and about how it's a sponsored standardization document and obviously innovate uk uh played a obviously leading role here but i'm well, i'm keen to understand a bit more of the sorts of other organizations who are involved in in developing the standard you know there were there were a broad range of other organizations involved towards the end in our uh, advisory panel uh, advising on uh, redrafts and changes to the text and they they generally came from companies or policy areas where with with an interest in these questions and were able to say I don't think this will work in my context and so on and we had to revise and redraft with that in mind. There there was an earlier involvement at, at the beginning of the project where BSI was asked to do a survey of a broad range of companies. I think there were about 40 or more different companies involved. And um, this was to check the market for the standard if it was developed. To what extent would your sector be interested, willing to have a standard like this and would you use it? And uh, that was the beginning of our understanding of the enormous demand that had built up in companies for this kind of standard. Up until then, we weren't that sure that there would be a market out there for it if we were to develop it. But this um, initial survey was very helpful in making the point that, yes, there is a market for this out there. And um, one of the points that came out from that market survey quite clearly was that not only did people want a, a standard, but they also wanted it to be 
accreditable. So they wanted to be able to say, I have signed up to the, the Responsible Innovation Standard and to put it on their logo or whatever, wherever on their website. Um, and that, that's the next stage, really, with this one, you know, that would we want to make it accreditable and so on in that way. Mm-hmm. But but there is there's definitely a pent up market. And, and that was uh, that came became clear in this initial survey. Mm-hmm. And then those comments were built into the standard as we were developing it. And there were we had a, a panel uh, of, of people from companies and policymakers who followed it throughout. Uh, the, the, its development and advised on redrafts, of which there weren't many, and um, and and then towards the end there were there was an additional uh, uh, open call for people to comment on the draft standard, and uh, let us know if they thought we needed to make any changes before the final draft came along. So just on that, yeah. So, yeah, sorry, Joyce. I was just interested there. The, the we haven't covered this on the podcast before, but the role of a technical author. What does that mean? Does that mean you're you're literally holding the pen, or you're 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 the first person to sort of put to put finger to keyboard? How does how yes, does that work? I, I, I was I was the first person to put finger to keyboard, <laughs> and uh, I, I think I think I. I think I volunteered for the job, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, once I'd got the job, I wondered if I'd done the right thing because it was so different from anything I'd ever written as an academic. But uh, I, I think I, I rose to the occasion very much with Paul's help. Uh, you know, my, my first draft, uh, which I wrote while I was on holiday up in Sky and it was raining, uh, and uh, I then sent it to Paul and it came back covered in very useful comments you know i'm not one of those people who gets annoyed if people comment on their work i'm just grateful that somebody read it that carefully <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know it was it was very very helpful and, and and paul had a major role in the drafting as well as myself i i, I was the one who uh, had to who put pen to paper first and i was the one who wrote the final version of each redraft i think there were about seven or eight redrafts of it on its way through and, i felt really bad about that joyce i kind of like was going through it and, you know like you'd made a fantastic start but it triggered lots of thoughts in me yeah and yeah. i kind of thought when as i was going through it, i kind of thought you've got to stop now and then i kept reading and kept thinking oh, what about this and what about that and um I saw, as I sort of said, press send. I kind of thought, I hope I don't demoralise you too much. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I spent part of my career in the Open University writing courses for students, and and their process is something similar. You know, you there is a course team who develop a course, and uh, you write your draft, and everybody on the course team sends back comments covered in various colours of ink, uh, and and uh, you you have to keep revising until everybody's happy so to speak and and it's it's good training it's good training for writing stuff that other people can understand yeah well that explains things because i used to use the you know open university textbooks when i was an undergraduate because i found them to be so easy to understand and useful and now yeah. you understand why that was the case yeah I suppose that's the plow, the power of a collective effort, isn't it, really? The yes. whole how, how standards are developed. Paul, I'm interested there it, also to find out um, the role of the sponsor. So obviously there's a spon- sponsor standardisation document. What does that really mean? You know, what's, what role do you did you play, does Innovate UK, in sponsoring the powers? Yeah, so, I mean, we're the UK's innovation agency and we try to look at the trajectory of global markets and we try to understand where you know, UK industry can benefit from those trajectories and we try and help overcome the barriers 
to them getting you know the full kind of opportunity that might come forward so we work with companies to, to try and do that um and sometimes it turns out that lack of standardization is an impediment to the growth of industries and that then immediately puts it on our radar as something we care about i mean we're not a standards body but we can help and so one of the first things that we can do is we can pay for the standard to be developed which is what we've done in this case um so bsi you know has to live through its income from its standards activities and you know can put a certain amount of their resources into the creation of new standards but you know if those standards don't wash their own faces then it gets kind of hard for them to justify doing it and so an organization like ours can come in and fund something like that where it isn't clear that you know it will be a you know a commercial proposition if you like so not enough not enough people wanting to use it to to justify it from a kind of bsi perspective so um the the first thing to do is to decide that we need a standard in that area so that's about our industry connections and understanding the trajectory of markets and technologies and then there is working with bsi to work out whether or not it's something they can just do within bsi or whether it's something they're going to need some help with um and in this case it was something that you know was a development activity needed a bit of help from us so so we paid for it from from the budget that i look after um and then there is the um if you like acting as the voice of industry so you know i was really keen that um i mean obviously the 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 content of the standard had to be academically robust you know you couldn't just make up any old thing and stick it in but it had to be practical for companies and that you know that, that's why i was so pleased when joyce took on the role of technical authors because she kind of gets that that thing about you know you don't have matters of time you're trying to make payroll that month if you're a startup you know um and so you know we can we can kind of act as the champion of companies and make sure that the, as the thing evolves and as the drafting comes forward um that it actually would resonate with the business audience and then you know in in terms of the survey that that was that was done by BSI to you know are people interested in this you know we then were able to recommend you know we looked at something like half a dozen different industries and companies of different sizes and different technology areas and so we surveyed a pretty broad land part of the UK industrial landscape we were able to identify some of the people we might want to ask questions of as well as BSI using their own contacts and networks to get you know representative voices that we could listen to um so yeah and then i mean i guess you know that 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 that's kind of broadly it really so identify the need um fund it and then help bring it to life through participation in the uh, in the different BSI processes and advisory boards um and I want to ask you about the we're going to ask about the key features of the standard. But before I do that, you've painted a picture there of obviously agreement and cooperation and consensus. I just wonder whether um, during the development of the standard, were there any particular pinch points or, or particular challenges over content? Um, we, we've talked on on episodes in the past about consensus being an absence of disagreement. You know, there are always um, conflicting opinions. I just wonder whether with this particular standard, whether you could you could highlight any of those for us? It would make sense if I say what is in the standard before I flag the particular point. No, that's sure. You, you, take, you um, take that away. I won't go into detail, but so there are three broad bits in the standard, really. One is, if you want to develop a new product or a service, how do you think about responsible innovation specifically for that new product? Um, so, you know, if you like innovations specific um uh, approaches um then there is a kind of well what about your whole organization what if you want the whole company to be 
doing responsible innovation in all of the products it develops and how it works with its customers and suppliers and so on and so forth. So there's a kind of corporate level or company level approach. And then the third major part of the standard, I suppose, speaks to sort of stakeholder engagement. So how do you engage with voices outside of your own organization to shed light on your thinking as you work your way through these kind of questions about what are the wider implications of what I'm proposing to do? Um, And for me, the biggest area of debate was around the issue of stakeholder engagement. because it takes quite a lot of time and with my company hat on if you like um so i worked in companies for 25 years before joining this public sector body that i'm in now um brilliant public sector body i would say um is you want to do you want it to be easy as it can be and as quick as it can be and as simple as it can be so you can get on chasing orders and making product and shipping it or whatever business you're in um so why do we need to do all this public stakeholder engagement And uh, it was kind of Joyce who really opened that door for me, I think, because you can do a lot of work by by thinking about a problem and reading about a problem and looking at the literature and talking to your suppliers and customers, for example. But there's always the question about, you know, the Donald Rumsfeld thing. What are the unknown unknowns? You know, I, I only see the world through the window that is the size of the window I look through. Um, and. So actually, if you go and ask other people, they may have a different window and they may give you a different view. And so that unknown unknowns is where it's incredibly important to to seek external stakeholder engagement. And we went back and forth on that a little bit because I was unconvinced at the beginning. Um, And I now think it's an incredibly important thing to do um, where you, you know, where you, you have to balance the effort it will take with the reward you're likely to get. Um, and so there's a time and a place for it. And there's a degree of intensity. You know, you can do it light touch. You can do it big touch. Or I think a really important part of the standard actually that's in the strategy and where you know Innovate UK can help is there are some issues that exist at the level of sectors, um, you know, and and therefore, why would every company in that sector have to do their own public engagement? Why could it not be done for, on behalf of the whole sector by a neutral body? Um, and um, that's where public infrastructure like ourselves or the KTN or the catapults, you know, we're in a position to kind of undertake some of those things in a neutral way on behalf of broader industry. Um, and that's also, a, you know, that, that comes through clearly in the, in the standard that, you know, people might want to, they might want to think about whether they want to do this on their own or, you know, to work with other people within their industry. Um, yeah. So that was for me a big, that was for me was a big area. Uh, there's something else there, Paul, it's clear that quite a few companies feel nervous about undertaking public engagement because of past experience where uh, people with a kind of value-based objections to a technology, people who in principle don't want to see this technology developed, can often use a stakeholder engagement initiative as a way of gaining publicity for their ideas and for trying to promote what in the end turns out to be fake news. And and certainly I know that from my experience with uh, GM crop development and so on. And um, I I think uh, it's important that companies understand how to do stakeholder engagement well, and that's in the PAS. But I, I think something that needs to happen is that that requirement to engage responsibly is also 
placed on all the other partners in an engagement initiative. So if you're not going to behave responsibly in this engagement, then you don't have a place in it. There's nothing to stop you making your political points somewhere else, but you're not engaging in this uh, initiative unless you behave responsibly in the engagement process. And I think that's maybe something to add to future standards that that, that re requirement for responsible engagement should be passed on to all partners in an engagement so that companies don't feel as if they're in danger of taking this on with both hands tied behind their backs, so to speak. It's been really interesting to hear you both talk about this standard and how it's developed and the discussion of ideas that you've had and, and how you've come to a consensus has clearly benefited the development of the standard you know, through that diversity of thought. Yeah, yeah, uh, and and from my perspective, it, it's an extra layer of um, how you can test something as well. Uh, you can test the quality of a service or a product, and you can, um, you know, you can test the how well something's managed. I guess, but I've never really thought of how how do you test how responsible something is and. From, from what you're both describing, it, it's a fascinating process that a company must go through to be able to have that discussion with society about what it's doing and, and how, it, how it might behave in, in something new that it's doing. Yeah, absolutely right. And I mean, I think there are, I mean, you know, things like, you know, know your customer initiatives. I mean, they, they, they weren't framed, I don't think, using the vocabulary of responsible innovation but they're a good tool for companies to use when they think about, um, you know, for example, you know, I mean, know your customer initiative. A nice example is not selling cigarettes to people under the age of 18. Right? I mean, you know, it's a like, this is a potentially harmful product. We don't, you know, we're a liberal society. So we think that people who want to be able to smoke perhaps ought to be able to uh, with, you know, given public health concerns and public spaces and so on and so forth. Um, but actually, if you're less than 18, you don't get to make that choice because, you know, the damage to your lungs when you're young will, will live with you. For, you know. So therefore, and therefore, they you know your customer the for the tobacconist perspective is, well, if somebody's under 18, you just don't sell to them. And you could apply that principle to any product. Um, and when I was in industry, there were some organizations that we, you know, we knew all of our customers and there's some areas we wouldn't sell to um, for various reasons. So I won't go into. Um, and that was part of, you know, responsible innovation because we didn't. We didn't call it that. Um, so there are loads of techniques. And part of the, um, I think part of the PADS is to kind of go, well, don't invent stuff. You know, if you've got something where you need to control where it goes, use KYC. If you've got that already, you don't need to have a new system. But refer to it in your responsible innovation documentation so that you can demonstrate to people who might care to ask, you know, that, you are, that you've thought about these things and you're doing your best to make sure that the good stuff happens and that you, you know you minimize the risk of anything unfortunate happening so you've been through this development process and and you've got uh, a document at the end of it PAS 440 how successful has it been so oh, far yeah hugely successful uh, i mean so far we launched it um six months ago or so and so far it has been downloaded uh, just over 2700 times um and that is more than any PAS. Uh, that Innovate UK has ever supported uh, with BSI. Actually, it's more than all of the downloads of all the PASs combined that we've ever supported with BSI. Actually, it's better than that. It's more than any standard BSI has ever published. I mean, it was downloaded a thousand times within the first 24 hours. 
Um, so I, it's, certainly it's not more than, you know, ISO 9000. So it's not more than the total number of uses of something. But in terms of the launch and the rapid take up, it's the most rapid take up of any standard BSI published in its entire history, which I think is really encouraging because what it says is that companies and businesses want to do the right thing and that they care about doing the right thing enough to actually download it and say, I wonder if we can get better at this. Let me find out about it. And particularly important is that the people who've downloaded it are the founders of companies or the directors of companies or in the C-suite of companies, and not all of them. I mean, you know, there's a good bunch of academics have downloaded it and public sector people too. But, you know, this is not, it doesn't feel to me like this is something that is being done, you know, unnoticed in the corner of a company while the rest of the company carries on as if none of this was happening. It feels to me like there are a lot of companies out there who are trying to put this at the heart of what they do and how they think about their place in society. And for me, that is a cause for optimism. I mean, that's a good sign about the culture in the UK industry, uh, which I'm, I mean, I didn't know it was going to go like that. Um, uh, but I think it's fantastic that that's how it's being, how it's being used at the moment. That must feel pretty good to have worked on this and it to be that well received. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and what's kind of happening, you know, as a result of this? I mean, is, is there any way that you, you're able to quantify that or assess the impact that it's having at the moment? It's work in progress, actually. I mean, that's what we need to do. Um, so it's normal pro- standard process for BSI to address, to, to try and capture the, the kind of impact of standards and passes that they uh, that they develop and uh, that's kind of ongoing um, and of course for us as Innovate UK um, you know we've got a very particular set of kind of questions I mean we want to know are companies doing something different because they've thought about the PAS you know so have they used it I mean have they, there's a difference between downloading it and reading it and then just carrying on as if nothing had ever happened I, you know or, or then there's a kind of we're downloading it, we're using it, we're completing the forms, we're doing... So we need to do, I think, from amongst the people who've downloaded it, quite an in-depth, you know, an in-depth conversation about what it is changing. You know, are they putting in management processes um, to, to control where their products go or to control their supply chains or to understand their supply chains? Are they um, changing the design of their products or services to maximise the good stuff still but to um, avoid malicious misuse, um, and is it you know? How, and also, is it, how practical is it? So, you know, we tried to write it, um, and Joyce did a brilliant job in a way that would make it easy to do use. So practical, you know, if you're busy, it's practical to use it. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, well, that's what our intention was. Were we successful? Is it practical, or is it still too hard? Or, you know, is there enough reference material? They all um, sound like great questions for a for a, a research project. Yeah, well, I, I could just mention in that context, um, I had two master's students over the summer who did dissertations using the PAS 440 with uh, small companies, small startups. And that, that experience is being written up. It's been written up in their dissertations and BSI is now uh, going ahead with putting that on the podcast, on this podcast, I think. They're, they're part of this podcast. And I'm, I, I'm also involved in uh, a, a research project that was funded in the transforming food production 
call from Innovate UK. It's a, a company that's developing uh, animal feed from algae using biological processes. And um, our part in this project is, uh, is to do a responsible innovation initiative with the small company that's developing the technology, but also with their partners in the value chain. And that includes big feed manufacturers and uh, supermarkets and so on. So, so we're hoping to try it out with them. And I think uh, having that as part of the application in the first place was a positive factor in getting the funding for the project. So uh, that's an Innovate UK programme. And I, I think if other people were to do that kind of thing in the academic community, then you know that might uh, in increase its pervasiveness and, and its use and also actually enable a better understanding of how it was used and how it was valuable and where it worked and where it didn't work uh, that could be documented and fed back into the process again. You are absolutely right, Joyce. We uh, we will speaking to to Isabella, one of your yes. one of your students, about her about her master's project. Yeah. Um, a final a final thought for you both, and I'm interested in sort of what next what next for the standard is there is there a journey here to to ISO to an international standard. My personal view is I think that would be fantastic. I mean, you know, we are 1% of the world's population. Um, well, actually, I think it's 0.9% of the world's population in the UK. And, um, and uh, which means that 99% of the world's customers and the users of technology aren't here. And, and so it's really important that, um, that everybody who introduces new products and new technology um, thinks about how those things can be done well and um so yeah i mean i would be delighted if it you know if we you know if bsi was able on behalf of the uk to reach out to to the iso organizations and to talk to their you know peer groups around the globe to say can we systematize and create something for responsible innovation that looks like iso 9000 for management standards management processes i mean i think that would be absolutely fantastic if that could could, could happen and then i think that you know the second kind of question is well you know what about accreditation and that's a, i think that's a really interesting question um it it's quite difficult to police but i was delighted that you know we we just thought when we went and did the original survey well, i mean when bsi did the original survey we helped them design it and they came back and they said well not only are these companies delighted to have it and they want it to be available and they want to use it but actually they'd like to be accredited uh, which was, I mean, we hadn't even dare ask that question, and yet people were asking for it. Not everybody, but quite a high percentage. I mean, um, it might even have been as you know, thirty or forty percent of people were asking that question, out of say eighty percent of people who were really, really receptive to it. Um, so I think that's a question. I don't know how you could accredit it, but I think if it was a way of accrediting it, it would be, it could really potentially add value. Joyce, I don't know. You, you, you probably got a perspective on this. Yeah, I, I think I think it could be accredited. I, I think the the documentation, the, the the forms that we're asking people to fill in at regular intervals uh, as they develop a product from very early stages through to market, um, monitoring what's been going on in those forms and who's been doing what, understanding where the responsibility lies within the company, and making sure that 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 in company responsibility is 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 valid and, and uh, is working. Uh, you know, I think there are quite a few ways it, it could be accredited. The same as any other behavioural standard. It's it's not straightforward, but there are ways it can be done.
Alan and I do love it when guests talk about the subjects of future episodes. So we will be looking at certification <laughs> soon. So that's fantastic. So thank you for setting that up beautifully. So I suppose obviously the certifications on, on the one side, there's a potential journey to ISO, but I suppose Paul, there's a, a formal review in 18 months or so for this, for the pass itself. Yeah. I mean, I think I'd defer to my colleagues in BSI on that, but my understanding is that it's normal process two years after a pass is launched to look at that and to formally review it so we'll be doing that for this and we'll try and take what we learn from its use by companies um the things that we got right in the original drafting uh, the things we might have missed in the original drafting the things that are actually harder to do than we anticipated or the things that were that, that add more value than we, ante- than we thought so we can put more emphasis on them in the in the next update so I, I mean, I would anticipate that there would be a revision to PAS 440, unless we got it so perfectly right that, that basically everyone says, just this is perfect, it's you know, beautifully formed, just carry on, leave it untouched. Of course, that has a real advantage for companies, because if companies have got their head around something, then why would you mess about with it, right? They'd have to learn it all over again. So I don't think we should change it for the sake of changing it. If it's good enough, let's let it run. But if it, if it can be made better, then we certainly should do so. Yeah, I, I think there's there's an idea following on from this. I mean, part of the underlying uh, background to doing this was the way the UK is adapting its regulatory systems post Brexit um, to make try to make our regulatory systems more adaptive to the needs of innovative technologies, and and you can see the hazards and the public perception issues that come up when you do that successfully, you know, we have successfully fast-tracked the COVID vaccines. And as a result, questions are being asked about the validity of the regulatory system in that process. And I found myself thinking, you know, ooh, is there a role for a standard for responsible regulation? And uh, would regulators want such a thing? Would they welcome it or would they see it as an intrusion? I think it's something to explore. There's a really interesting interplay between the collective behaviour of companies in a particular topic area as they seek to behave properly and how that, re- uh, that same area is then regulated by, um, well, by statute or by the relevant regulatory bodies or off gem or off what, whoever it might be. And if in a very early stage technology area, people voluntarily doing the right thing, demonstrating they're doing the right thing, there being no unfortunate or adverse effects. If we can gather enough evidence from that, that provides quite a good evidence pack for regulators to consider so that they don't put regulation in that strangles the good behavior um, or prevents good behavior from happening and new products and products and services coming to market. But that maintains the, um, a decent playing field so that people who want to cut corners and take risks to the detriment of society find it difficult to do so. Now, it's not a direct read across and regulators must make an independent decision and then they must enforce it in an independent decision and it must be evidence-based. And, you know, we definitely don't want to sort of slip anything through that shouldn't be through. But, but the possibility of using the standard as a way of doing the experiments in a proper way that can then be codified into into the, the 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 regulatory requirements, or, yeah. or you know, or, or, or more system wide um, guidance from you know the likes of HSE or whoever, 
then um, I think there's a really there's a really high potential there, and that's why the detail of this next eighteen months, where we seek to understand how this is being used and where it's being useful, is quite important. Because if we find a cohort of companies in the same technology or market area, we can bring them together to talk to them. You know, obviously, you know they obviously under proper kind of processes, um, respecting confidentiality, about. Are there things in there that you know would be useful to, for us to, 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 to put on the radar of radar of, of regulators? Um, and I think that's you know Joyce teed that comment up, but I, I think it's potentially really valuable. Now, towards the end of our conversation with Paul and Joyce, Joyce referred to some of the research being carried out on the impact of PAS 440. We explore that briefly with our final guest, Isabella Cabrera. Isabella recently completed her Master's in Bioeconomy, Innovation and Governance at the University of Edinburgh, working with Joyce Tate. Colombian-born, Isabella studied industrial engineering and in Germany, before embarking on a decade in IT project management in the finance sector in several countries. As part of her Master's, Isabella conducted a research project on how organisations are increasingly facing stakeholder demands to operate responsibly and demonstrate transparency on the risks associated with a new product. She wanted to trial PAS 440 as a mechanism to potentially support companies to make strategic decisions in the commercialization of their R&D. Oh, and it was also about purple tomatoes. Purple tomatoes? Yep, purple tomatoes. My research was about genetically modified purple tomatoes. So these tomatoes, um, they have been modified to provide a higher nutritional value than the common tomatoes. And they were initially developed by uh, the research center, the John Innes Center. Um, and they created a spin-out company called Norfolk Plant Sciences in order to commercialize the purple tomatoes. And as you know, the BSI has published the Responsible Innovation Standard Pass for 40 to provide guidelines for organizations that want to innovate responsibly and demonstrate responsible behavior. The Pass for 40 is a practical guide that aims to be realistic about the challenges that innovators face and it aims to demonstrate transparency in a way that is mutually beneficial for both the company and the public interest, however, without jeopardizing competitive advantage. So why is this research important then? Why should people care about it? It's important because there are no efficient policies supporting innovation in the current market. So it is important for the market to be more flexible in order to provide better products. It highlights the importance of responsible innovation as a stepping stone in, provi in providing the consumers with the information about a technology they know little about. Now, I've done quite a bit of research in my time, didn't do a, a master's, but did a, a PhD. And I think motivations are really important to keep you uh, to make sure that you can get out of bed each day and do the research. So what were your motivations for researching this area? Well, my motivations, Matthew, were initially about vaccines. And you're probably going to ask yourself, what do vaccines have to do here with the topic at hand? But as genetically modified 
foods, vaccines are also a very controversial topic. So my motivations for researching was to try and understand if consumers could potentially receive such a controversial a controversial research in a better, more open way with the Pass 440 providing more transparency towards the market. It was in a way for me to try and ask questions if this could possibly work, if the Pass 440 could be successfully introduced in a company if consumers may be more open to technologies technologies such as genetic modification. So back to the research then, what were your what were your findings? Well, I found that the stakeholders' interactions are far more complicated than one initially expects because it is about dealing with multiple expectations and ultimately how this fits the capabilities of each individual. It is worth it that companies try and implement such standards because it gives them an an initial idea of which processes along their value chain need revision or improvement. If it gave this company in in particular the opportunity to ask questions about the process of creating the spin-up companies, um, in this case, NPS or Norfolk Plant Science, about what went wrong, what went right, and how this can serve as a base for effective policymaking. I also think this can be of great advantage um, for poly- for for regulators to be used as a foundation and help shape and define many policies in the years to come. Do you want me to ask you about the best thing about the project? Because that was a nice place on which to finish. Sure. Go ahead. (laughs) Go go ahead and ask you. We'll finish it there. (laughs) No, go ahead. Uh, I will, I will definitely answer that question. Um, I I think the best thing about this project is um, getting to see how hard scientists work in their fields and their research, but it's also important to recognize the obstacles that they face because policy does not support innovation in an effective way. So I think that the past 440 is a great opportunity to finally make this a reality. So Alan, that was the spotlight shone on the standard PAS 440. What have we learned? I think from Elaine, we heard about the issues of time and control are really appealing to sponsor organisations who wish to develop a PAS, but they don't. To, the developing a standard in this way doesn't lose the rigour and the sort of fair and transparent stakeholder development process that BSI uses for all of its other standards. I think the second thing was about PAS being a, a route to international standards too. And I think from Paul and Joyce... We heard that technology is neither good or bad. It's what's done with it that matters. And using PAS 440 can help an organisation to achieve the benefits of their innovation and avoid or mitigate any of the harms that it might cause. It also gives organisations a framework for achieving that balance. How to assess what's the right thing to do. And clearly, there's an interest and demand in the market for the standard. Yes, I think it was fascinating to hear Paul talk about the the sort of thousands of downloads and how quickly those downloads uh, were made as soon as the the standard was launched. So you're right, there's clearly that interest and demand in the market. And I think finally from Isabella, we heard about PAS 440 in action, about how it can give organisations a way of dealing with those complex and potentially controversial issues around genetically modified food in this case. And, in, and she talked about uh, purple tomatoes. 
and also about the relationship between the development of a new technology, establishing a market position and getting that advantage that a company wishes, uh, wishes to, to exploit, but also thinking about consumer protection and information at the same time. I think finally, Alan, I suppose, we learned that um, maybe the frequency of consensus is 440 hertz. I've always wondered what that buzzing <laughs> noise was. <laughs> I suppose we should wrap it up there. Now, I think food, I mean, Isabella made some really important points about uh, about genetically modified food. I think food systems and food safety, maybe they're subjects to, we should uh, we should come back and have a, another look at. I think so, but you're making me hungry now. <laughs> Uh, thanks to a uh, huge thanks to Elaine, Paul, Joyce, and Isabella for their uh, fantastic contributions, and uh, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Matthew. You have been listening to an episode of the BSI Education podcast. To find out more, visit bsigroup.com forward slash education. just heard a stripped media production.